Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Every three months, we have the good fortune to welcome Peterson Toscano to sit in for me for an hour-long version of his podcast, Citizens Climate Radio. It's your good luck to have tuned in today to hear Peterson. Before I turn things over to Peterson, I'd like you to know a bit more about him. I got to know him early on while doing Spirit in Action, interviewing him back in 2007 about his path as an ex-gay survivor and his solo theater piece, Doing Time at the Homo No Mo Halfway House. He's created a number of other theater pieces and presentations over the years, like The Re-Education of George W. Bush and, more recently, Transfigurations, and also Everything is Connected. Interwoven with the various forms of world-opening activism that Peterson has pursued is his deep spirituality, including his deep encounter with the Bible and his need to wrestle with it, especially when his original Christian fundamentalism was so life-threateningly juxtaposed with his gay identity. So he learned, saw with new eyes, and shared those lessons with others profoundly and humorously. And he's here today to share about climate change from a rich array of perspectives. I'll let Peterson introduce you to the topics and the great cast of characters as Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio hosts today's Spirit in Action show. Lay it out for them, will you, Peterson? I have prepared for you a mix of stories. Some may seem silly and others are deadly serious. In the second half of the show, we will explore the sobering topic of pollution, race, and justice. Journalist Brenton Mock from the Atlantic Monthly City Lab team talks about environmental racism and climate justice. Joining him is Dr. Natasha Dijonet from the American Public Health Association. Dr. Dijonet reveals the shocking statistics related to asthma and people of color. In today's show, you will also hear from an eyewitness who moved to New York City weeks before Superstorm Sandy tore things up. Edgar Westerhoff came from the Netherlands and just happened to have advanced training in water management. Learn about attitudes towards water and flooding and how the Dutch in Amsterdam have a very different take than New Yorkers in New Amsterdam. Poet Tyree Day ends our show today with readings from his book of poetry, River Hymns. A North Carolina resident, he expertly and beautifully weaves in family lore, nature, and justice into his poetry. But first, Brian Etling, a climate comic, joins me for a ridiculously serious look at comedy in a time of climate change. Conversations about climate change can get downright dire and dreary. But there is room for comedy, right? Brian Etling is a comic who is not ashamed to pull out a rubber chicken for a gag. He joined me for a lively conversation about climate comedy. By day, he is a park ranger in the U.S. Parks Department. But once he gets in front of a camera or an audience... His silly side comes out. Brian has stepped up as the climate comic. 
He has an active YouTube channel and even landed a major American television spot you will hear about. Brian believes comedy is key when talking about climate change. This is a subject near and dear to my own heart. As a performance artist who takes on serious issues, I turn to comedy often to help open up my audiences. It can be a powerful tool in deepening the conversation. I sat down with Brian Esseling to talk about comedy, and I want to share with you the fun and insightful chat we had. Well, welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. It's great to have you on the show, Brian. It is such an honor to be on Citizens Climate Radio. So, you know, the thing is, we've got a lot in common. We're both yes. involved with Citizens Climate Lobby. Mm-hmm. We both have talked to members of Congress, mm-hmm. but we both do comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm so thrilled about, having a fellow <laughs> climate comic person. Oh, me too. But don't you find it annoying when, pe- when people hear that, they say, well, tell us a joke. I, I feel like a deer caught in the headlights because climate change, change jokes are really hard. Brian Malo, he, he's out of North Carolina, comedian. He said that dissecting humor is like dissecting a frog. Both are killed in the process. <laughs> and I feel the same thing about climate change humor. It's If you put me on the spot and say, start saying, tell me climate change jokes, I don't know what to tell you. But it's when I start doing my own perf- performing about it, that's when the jokes start flowing naturally. And I think it's a little different to like stand-up comics do something very specific. Yes. And they do come with prepared jokes often. Mm-hmm. Well, what we do, you know, is kind of more situational comedy. Because you often are playing off of people. Like your mom is one of your regular characters. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I find that, I guess my, my favorite kind of comedy for myself is, is, is responsive comedy. When you're responding to someone. Or I'm, I'm wanting to be crazy, you know, I'm getting out rubber chickens and earth balls, and my mom's bringing me down the worth. The tagline I've come up with my videos is, you're not that funny, Brian. You know, my wife does the line, my mom does the line. There is a certain seriousness to climate change, but on that level, I'm, I'm trying to, to insert some humor into that. On, on one level, I'm always trying to be funny, but on another level, I don't think of myself as that funny. It's just I'm always trying. I'm trying some angle to be funny, if that makes sense. Which makes you funny. (laughs) Even if there's no joke there. Yeah, if there's no joke there. Yeah, I'm trying to be funny. And it also makes you vulnerable and someone that we can relate to. Because I think we're all kind of feeling that about ourselves in talking about climate change or getting involved. Yes, exactly. Now, I've had some folks on the show already who are Mm -hmm. famous, up Mm -hmm. and coming. But you landed... A pretty sweet, amazing national gig, national TV star is on our show today. Tell us about this moment that you had. Well, to give you the background of this, well, the show was Tosh.0 on Comedy Central. So for a few years now, I've been doing these short YouTube videos. And some of it was to promote Citizens Climate Lobby. So I talked about promoting myself as a climate change speaker and also my wife with her violin and my mom who's a, who's a pianist. And so there were short comic videos and you know that I give these climate change talks that I, I talk about climate change is real, it's bad, climate, ch- climate scientists agree, but we can fix it. We can do something about it. And then I said, but I'm also very funny. And in each video... My mom or my wife says, you're not that funny, you know, and I've got not rubber chickens. I've anything I can to try to get, get an audience. Well, I got this call in April 
from a producer of Tosh.0. And he's just kind of interviewing me and trying to see if I'm, if I'm really a freak or if I'm, if, I'm a, if, I can, if I'm decent enough to go on their show. And so he, he asked me, he goes, we would like to fly you out to Los Angeles this week. Would you like to do it? And I'm like, sure, I'll do it. You know, I'm always hip for anything, a new adventure kind of thing. And then he asked if my mom would be interested. And my mom's a piano player, kind of want to be a performance. Like, it only took her one second to say yes. But she said, you better ask your wife. It was going to be a honeymoon week for us here. And my wife thought it was hilarious. She said, got to, you've got to do it. you got to do it. And so the, she says, Did you, do you ever watch this show? And I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah sure, I watched this show. And then a few minutes later, do you really watch this show? And I had to kind of admit, I don't. So we, it was kind of a giant leap into nowhere to do this. And I went there, and Tosh and the staff were super supportive. They're all on board with climate change, which should, should give us hope there. There too. And they were very, Tosh flat out told me, he goes, the joke's going to be on me, meaning him. You know, don't make yourself into an idiot unless you want to be an idiot. So I pretty much played the straight guy and let Tosh be the crazy performer. So it was a wonderful experience. I would do it again in a heartbeat if anybody has knows of anything else like this. Well, you know, it's I, I've enjoyed the show. What he does often is, is in a way make fun of people doing stupid things yes. on YouTube. Yes. But he is always the first one to make fun of himself. <laughs> uh, he really is. And he'll do crazy, silly things to, yes. you know, for the gag. But that in that silly moment with a whole demographic of young men watching the show, mm-hmm. which is his demographic, yes, they're suddenly hearing about climate change in the midst of this silly thing, wondering, oh my gosh, is you know, is Daniel Tosh going to make fun of this guy? What's going to happen? And they are getting content that they're normally not hearing. Well, that to me felt like a grand slam home run, if not more, because a lot of times at climate conferences, because we have the money and means to do it, it tends to be middle-aged or older folks, and I want to say even white guys. So for me, it felt like I was able to reach an audience that may not be able to come to a CCL conference. Hopefully we'll get them soon. But for me, when I, when I went, when I did the show, it was a huge coup for me. And now it's so great when I meet 20-somethings. I'm like, hey, have you heard of Tosh.0? And I'm immediately cool with 20-somethings. I wasn't cool when I was a 20-something, but now I can be kind of cool for, for my 15 minutes of fame for, for 20-somethings, which is great. We, we reached an audience there too. When I first started looking into making comic responses to climate change, I was looking to see what other people had done. Yes. And I didn't come across your site uh, because I was looking at sort of more mainstream things. Of course, now I would find you because you were you are now mainstream. <laughs> but I noticed that the vast majority of comedy was mocking people who were dismissive of climate change. Mm-hmm. That was the joke. It was the same joke over and over. Look at those idiots. Yes. How stupid. I really appreciate that you do other things because I don't think ultimately that's funny. No, it's not. And I don't think it moves us anywhere forward. So how have you dealt with the like the dismissal thing? Because it seems like that's what people want. Again, I think if, if your audience can relate to you, you know, I, I, try to, I try to come in that I'm really interested in this sub- subject. I'm passionate about it, but I'm still an idiot. And it relates to them because we're all feeling like we're idiots in some way. So I, I relate to that way. So I really try not to, I really try to steer away from the, the making fun of, I don't even like using the term denier, but people who are dismissive of climate change. I have compassion for them. You know, there's, there's, if you, if you want that, you can pretty much go on John Oliver, Trevor Noah, any of those shows are going to be making fun of climate deniers. That audit, that, that market's already there. What I, what I want to do is I want to make fun of myself. And that actually seems to reach 
some of the climate dismissive people. When you're, when you're showing that you're not above them, when you're not a goody two-shoes, when you're not a know-it-all, that you're struggling through life also, they seem to relate to that. As opposed to you're making fun of them, you're belittling them. I want to uplift them, you know, with humor. And when you're using humor, their minds are just a little bit more open. Yeah. And if you're familiar with, with Dan Miller, I th- he's well, he's involved, well involved with a Citizens Climate Lobby in California. He did a, a TED Talk a few years ago, and he said talking about climate change can be like flatulence at a cocktail party. Exactly, and that's what that that's. I, I You're could, so rude. Yeah, how dare you bring up this topic? <laughs> so that, that kind of cracks me up too. So unfortunately, I've got I'm the person with gas or who's just belched at a at a polite yeah. situation, huh? You're the court jester. Yes, mm-hmm. and thank God for court jesters. Well, if you go back to Shakespeare, oftentimes the the, the court jester is the is the wisest person in the play. It's the king who can't see past his own power in that. But the court jester is, is the only person that can tell the king exactly what's going on and use, using humor to do it, too. So, yeah, thank goodness for court jesters throughout our history. They're the ones that shine a light on where others can't. Well, I want to thank you that you agreed, now that you are hit the big time, that you agreed <laughs> to be on Citizens Climate Radio, and I could only put up just the, the little notion out there that maybe one day I could appear on stage with you. And we can oh, yeah. do like a joint, join our super twin climate comedy powers and see what happens. Peterson, if you ever want to do it, and join, I would, it would just be a huge honor for me. Well, Peterson. super, thank you so much for being on Citizens Climate Radio. Oh, thank you, Peterson. Now tell me a joke now, quick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I was able to share with you the conversation Brian and I had. To see Brian in action, check out his YouTube page. Go to YouTube and search for Brian Etling, E-T-T-L-I-N-G. Brian and I talked about the comedy we do. It's not the typical stand-up with a series of jokes. In my case, I do comic storytelling in character. Almost always, I base my characters on people I like and admire. They are also a little eccentric. One of these is Tony Buffuzio, a working-class Italian-American from the Bronx in New York City. Tony is very much based on my own dad, Pete Toscano. Growing up, we never talked about the environment, sustainability, or climate change. Still, I learned a lot about recycling, reusing, and repurposing from my dad. He hated to throw anything away and found ingenious ways of storing and reusing what would normally go to the landfill. He was not an environmentalist. He was just cheap and didn't want to pay to send another bag of trash to the town dump. The following monologue is one that I do on stage, and it always gets a big response from the audience. Afterwards, someone typically comes up and wants to talk about climate change. So, here's a little Tony Buffuzio. Hey everyone, this is Tony Buffuzio from the Bronx. How you doing? So, climate change. People freak out when they hear about climate change. You know, folks, don't freak out, alright? You know, there's still hope. There's still solutions. In fact, some of you are working on those solutions. You know, we're not dead in the water yet. We haven't gone to hell in a handbasket.
all right, we can be honest. We know the crap's going to hit the fan, but we don't yet know how much crap and how big of a fan we're going to need to deal with it. So lots of questions remain. Now, I don't know about you, but have you noticed since this climate change thing's been happening, there's been this huge uptick in polar bear imagery in the world. Yeah, lots of polar bears on the internet. And these photographers, I have to say, they're amazing. Their photographs, they tell whole stories. You see this polar bear, it's on an ice floe. It looks so sad. It looks so forlorn. It tugs at your heart, right? Yeah, you like want to go over and hug it, right? No, you don't want to hug it. That thing will rip you to shreds. The polar bears are very dangerous creatures. But still, it's sad how their habitat is shrinking and they can't go off and murder seals like they like to do. So you know what's happening with the polar bears right now? They're going up on land in Alaska. They're going into landfills. They're going into people's garbage cans. Yeah, they become a real nuisance. Polar bears have become the raccoons of Alaska. They're disgusting. I don't like them. And they're dangerous. You know, but the problem is the climate isn't just warming up in the Arctic. It is, of course, more rapidly than anywhere else. But it's also warming in other places like Central America. It's warming there, too. And there's this disease, this fungus that's spreading like wildfire, attacking coffee plants. It's called coffee leaf rust. It's a real thing. Look it up. Now, this is going to sound awful, but, you know, I think I could live without polar bears. But a world without coffee? <laughs> yeah, that's a dystopian future that I can't face. Ah, New York. Fashion, finance, food. The Global Metropolitan Center boasts if you can make it here, you could make it anywhere. People have come from all over the world to make their mark on this city. With climate change, even the weather is getting into the act. Nearly six years ago, Hurricane Sandy took New York City by storm. New Yorkers had no idea uh, what was happening to them. There was a tremendous surge. If you just look at the Battery Park, uh, I think it was six, seven, eight feet above the average high tide. So water really rushed into the city like a wall of water. Uh, coming into lower Manhattan, the lower uh, parts of the city were inundated. Um, cars are floating out of parking garages, uh, no telecommunication, hospitals uh, that had to be evacuated, uh, first responders who couldn't leave uh, their buildings. Uh, it had a massive impact. Meet Edgar Westroff. Originally from the Netherlands, Edgar is now a New Yorker. He comes from a nation that knows a lot about flooding and water management. I'm born and raised in the countryside, uh, about an hour and a half northeast of Amsterdam, close to the German border, beautiful, green, lush, and a little bit higher too. <laughs> Less flooding, we don't really need levees uh, where I was born and raised. Parts of the Netherlands could not exist without flood management. Uh, we do need them uh, further to the west uh, where, you know, without levees, uh, we as water managers uh, say that about 50% of the country is susceptible to, uh, to flooding. 
So that means without any uh, structure, uh, like we know them, the Delta works, the levees, the gates. The big things we accomplished past few uh, decennia, you know, uh, that keeps uh, the Netherlands uh, dry. Uh, also pumping, uh, because large parts of the Netherlands are below sea level. Uh, for example, Schiphol, uh, Schiphol International Airport. Uh, you may not notice it, you may not know it, but if you fly into Schiphol uh, Airport, uh, it's minus uh, three meters uh, approximately below, uh, below the sea level. So you can imagine without levees uh, what that would look like. The average Dutch citizen, especially living in the provinces of North and South Holland, knows a thing or two about flooding. Edgar is a trained expert working in water management for nearly 20 years. Currently, he is the National Director for Flood Risk and Resiliency for Arcadis North America. Yeah, so I've been uh, trained as a water engineer, which is an engineering water management, uh, water manager, which is an engineering degree uh, in the Netherlands. I also have a planning uh, degree. So when you talk about water resilience, these two, these two fields uh, come together. City planners, politicians, and citizens in the Netherlands have a long-term relationship with seawater and water management. We've built a culture around water in the Netherlands. We've built our identity around water in our country. If you go to holland.com, you see three things. You see people biking, you see uh, tulip bulbs, and you see water management. You know, not that the Dutch are trying to sell uh, wooden shoes or tulip bulbs on that page, but... It's about identity. Uh, we've built it uh, over hundreds of years. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, 900 years ago, uh, that's when we started to form uh, our democracy around water management through water boards, farmers co- collaborating, cooperating, knowing that you know water doesn't make a distinction on where you are. It connected the lands uh, from the farmers, so we had to collaborate. What better place to get your feet wet in the field? Edgar, though, left the Netherlands and moved to the USA to New York City. If there are water management gods, they made sure Edgar arrived at the perfect time. Uh, I came a couple of months uh, prior to Sandy, uh, Superstorm Sandy, October 2012. The New Yorkers uh, know that date. I know that date as well. It's when my professional career, I would say, got launched in the city. You know, I was finding my way uh, in the city, meeting with a lot of people uh, pre-Sandy. Uh, of course, already uh, connected to a couple of uh, firms, uh, including a firm from Redlands, uh, Arcadis. They hired me the day after Sandy, uh, and my life, uh, I would say, has been a roller coaster ever since. Uh, during Sandy, I biked uh, to Low Manhattan myself uh, the evening of Sandy. My wife was not too happy with that, but I need to see this. I need to experience this with my own eyes. I've been you know, reading, studying uh, this all my life. I need to see this. So I went on my mountain bike down, downtown making photos, and I saw how ill-prepared this city was. You know, uh, firms on the west side, 200 West, massive financial institutions, stacking place hands from Home Depot, plastic bags in front of their main entrances. They had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea how to prepare. I mean, it could have been so much worse. It, it, it made landfall just below, south uh, of New York. If it would have been just a little bit further up, the damage would have been so, so much more significant. And even though it was all, it was already so significant, uh, the estimated value uh, was, and still counting, between 60 and 80 billion. 
City officials also had to respond to the growing threats of future storms and flooding. Edgar understands the role identity plays in taking on rising waters. The Netherlands has had centuries to deepen their relationship with the sea and to develop strategies to work with the conditions they face. Edgar believes New Yorkers need to evolve quickly in order to address the rising waters. How, how do you make that match? How do you bridge that gap in understanding, knowing that we, we need to aim bigger, we need to think more integrated? Uh, it's not just about you know, local interventions, what can be done at a certain spot. It has to be about you know, the bigger picture. And I would say the regional spin-off uh, of what's happening at certain places. It cannot just be about, you know, say, uh, a park, a waterfront park. It has to be bigger. And that bigger theme, you know, it can relate to multifunctionality, how you use it. It can relate to energy. It can relate to accessibility. It can relate to many things, uh, but it should not just relate to that one park. Right after Superstorm Sandy, I read a lot about the role of oysters and oyster beds. These once surrounded Manhattan and other parts of the New York waterways. Oyster beds can absorb some of the impacts of storm surges. So, will the oyster be the savior of New York City? Well, as much as I love oysters, as much as I also think that an oyster or a million oysters cannot be the solution you know, by itself. Of course, we all love green, green solutions. Green solutions will definitely be part of the solution over time, but it will be a combination of gray and green. And oysters, as good as they are, we won't likely eat them in, in the near future. We also need a lot of them uh, in order really to have effect. And it's kind of, kind of comparable to the marshland, the wetlands discussion, uh, say around Jamaica Bay, where that kind of environment uh, has been you know, around for a long, long time. But the environment has changed, and maybe we first have to fix what we currently have, because the Jamaica Bay, to continue about that example, has changed so much. I think there's more to win right now with zoning and planning than there's to win with oysters. Edgar Westeroff provided me with a list of excellent online resources about planning ideas and implementation since Sandy. You can find this list of resources in our show notes. Just visit soundcloud.com and search for Citizens Climate Radio or go to our blog at citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Coming up next, hear from an African-American journalist about how climate change is heating up segregation. Also, poet Tyree Day reads for us from River Hymns a stunning personal collection of poetry about nature, family, death, life, floods, and crickets. Such wonderful resources and insights you're bringing today, Peterson. Thanks for sitting in for me for Spirit in Action and adding to the riches of Northern Spirit Radio. Website, folks, is northernspiritradio.org with Peterson's Citizens Climate Radio podcasts featured, as well as a few other podcasts, one called Cool Solutions and another called Everyday Nonviolence, plus all of the Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul shows for the past 13 years, links to guests, stations that carry our programs, and more. 
I want to say a special hello to the folks in Pine Mountain Club, California, on KCPK and RAWA Radio out in Bloomington, Illinois, and WRWK from Midlothian, Virginia, all new over the past few months. There are some 37 stations nationwide carrying our programs, and we'd love to see you supporting them with your hands and with your wallets, because the alternative that Community Radio provides is absolutely essential right now. You know, don't you, that over 90% of our media are controlled by only six corporations, and that they provide a narrow, self-serving selection of news and music to fit their agenda. So support your local community radio stations and other local media and empower the local voice that is so definitely needed. And if you have a little more to spare, click on the donate button on northernspiritradio.org and support this full-time work. We just can't do it without you. But now let's head back to Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio as he sits in for me today for Spirit in Action. Back over to you, Peterson. After 10 years of reporting on race, culture, and civil rights, Brenton Mock embraced environmental issues as his new beat. That was in 2008. He has since become a leading voice highlighting environmental racism in America. Brenton also speaks candidly about failures of predominantly white environmental organizations that attempt to reach out to people of color and what climate advocates can do to build a more diverse coalition. Brenton Mock writes for the Atlantic Monthly's City Lab team. Back in 2008, he was accepted for a fellowship at the Metcalf Institute at the University of Rhode Island. The goal was to train non-white journalists to cover the science of climate change. I knew nothing about environmentalism. It just wasn't something I followed. Like many science-based climate courses, the focus was not on U.S. cities, but up in the Arctic. He began to pursue his own research. He recognized that this issue, climate change, is very much about people and not just polar bears. We very much did learn about declining polar bear populations and things of that order. But I I stumbled upon the work of Dr. Robert Bullard, the father of environmental justice scholarship, and he spent the entire afternoon with me. And he told me, you know, this is not just about polar bears. This is really about everything that you've been seeing when you go to these black communities and you see black people suffering. Yeah, there's a a real explanation for that. Coming to this work, though, Brenton Mock had already spent a lifetime observing the impacts of segregation and racism. He witnessed firsthand how people of color experience pollution and the health risks associated with it. Well, my sister, she has severe asthma, like really bad. And, you know, I remember when I was younger, we all lived under the same roof, having to wake up two, three o'clock in the morning because she was having an asthma attack, you know, them calling the ambulance and, you know, her being rushed to the hospital late at night, which was always terrifying. While that was terrifying, what is kind of interesting when I look back is how normal that was. Like in the uh, communities I grew up in, schools I went to, the churches I attended. When when I was in grade school, I remember like every other kid had an inhaler. When I went to church, again, every other kid had an inhaler. And being outside playing on the playgrounds, you know, kids had inhalers. They were on all kinds of medication. 
it was enough that I, I, I didn't know that that was abnormal. But in eighth grade, his parents placed Brenton in a predominantly white Catholic school. This was probably the first time that most of the kids in my classroom did not have asthma. <laughs> you know, where I, where I was like, whoa, okay, so this is not like a normal thing. I mean, like the kids in, in that school, they were allergic to stuff like peanut butter and stuff. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. I obviously can't go back and do the epidemiology. I don't know the diagnosis of every kid in my neighborhood, but I can tell you that, you know, I lived in a predominantly black community in the city. When you look at where asthma is most prevalent, it's it's most prevalent in cities affecting black communities, Latino communities disproportionately. And that has to be a byproduct of pollution in some way. To get a clearer picture of how long-term and pervasive the pollution and health inequity is, I spoke with Dr. Natasha Dejanet. She is a policy analyst at the American Public Health Association. Her expertise is in environmental health. Dr. Dejanet explains that there has been a direct correlation between race and pollution. In the early onset of the environmental justice movement, Dr. Robert Bullard published a paper that showed that the most common predictor of environmental toxins and where these toxins were located was race. Very unfortunately, African-American communities, communities that are populated of African-American families, are more likely to have higher pollution levels. Air pollution is certainly of concern, but water pollution is also of concern among African-American communities as well as communities of color. As I was doing some research on the topic, it was really disturbing to find that a lot of things that people were finding and the evidence that people were finding in the 80s and 90s, people are still finding today very unfortunately. Brenton Mock spoke about asthma in particular, both the ways his sister has suffered and the prevalence of asthma in the African-American communities he's moved in and out of. Dr. Dijanet shared with me some of the studies about asthma. One study found that African-Americans faced a 54% higher burden of air pollution compared to the overall population. When you looked at Communities of color in general in this same study, it was still 28% higher, but it's even higher once they dug further into the African-American community. Also, African-American communities are more likely to live on the fence lines of pollution exposure. By fence lines, uh, this could be um, close proximity to industrial polluters or traffic exposures, or, or other point source polluters. The percent of African-Americans living in the fence lines of these communities is 75% greater than for the U.S. as a whole. Another study found that three times as many African-Americans compared to their Caucasian counterparts die from asthma. This statistic is even worse when we look at African-American children, where the ratio then becomes five to one African-American children compared to Caucasian children. Speaking to Brenton Mock and Dr. Dijonette, I found myself remembering my own childhood. For the first six years of my life, I lived in Stamford, Connecticut, in the USA. 
we were an Italian-American working-class family living on the outskirts of the industrial zone of the city. In fact, my father walked two blocks to his job at a plastic product manufacturer. We would joke about the terrible smell. I recently dug up my kindergarten class photo. While most of our immediate neighbors were white, every person in the photo is black, except for the teacher and me. As a kid, I suffered from severe asthma. One of my very first memories is of being rushed out of the house in the middle of the night and placed in a plastic oxygen tent. I felt terror at not being able to breathe. I felt alone. Back then, parents were not allowed to spend too much time in hospital with a sick child. When I was six, my mom, my sisters, and I spent a summer with my grandparents who recently moved out of New York City to the Catskills in upstate New York. Within a week, my asthma attacks stopped. I was able to run around and play without collapsing. Seeing this dramatic improvement to my health, my parents decided we needed to leave the city and move into the country. We relocated to this rural community that welcomed us. I found new friends and my dad got a job as a welder. I also never again suffered from an asthma attack. In fact, by the time I was 13 years old, I rarely ever felt symptoms return. I was an asthma refugee. My circumstances provided me a way to leave the cause of my illness. I told Brenton this story, who in turn talked about mobility. You know, you mentioned the mobility of you living in uh, Stanford and then but having the ability to move to the Catskills. Well, most black people didn't have that. You know, they lived in a, a area designated as undesirable because of its proximity to pollution uh, or because of its proximity to vulnerability to a disaster. And they may have wanted to move, but they couldn't. Right. They, they didn't have the resources. Uh, they didn't have the money. They may have had family ties that were so so close such that they could not move. So when you're stuck in place, and, it, and it's a place where, let's be honest, I mean, where black people live is normally not where they have chosen to live in the first place. It is the place where they have been designated to live because no other neighborhood would take them in. Most of the 20th century, when uh, restrictive housing covenants and Jim Crow and redlining you know, forbade African Americans from living in certain neighborhoods, even once those walls have been broken down of redlining and Jim Crow and all of that, a black family still won't move into a predominantly white neighborhood because of that legacy. They know that there was racial terror happening when other African-Americans try to integrate. So what does this mean in regards to climate change? Climate change literally is overheating segregation. It's taking the impacts of segregation and it's overheating it. It's, it's adding additional vulnerability to that place. It's adding additional risk, additional threats, additional opportunities for people in that neighborhood to lose their lives or to have their lives compromised. The legacy of racial segregation in America has made it such that African Americans, all people of color, have been forced to live in the most undesirable areas of any place in America. I mean, no matter where you go, 
and not just because of the living conditions, right? But because of literally where it is located, it's, it's, it's in a flood zone. It's in an area where there's probably zoning for industrial practices not far away, or it's close to, to power plants. It's, it's close to waste disposal, waste incinerators. I mean, it, no matter where you go, this is the case, still the case today. Brenton explains that a problem this big requires a giant response. Let's face it. I mean, the way that politics happens in Congress, you, you really need a groundswell of people to move Congress members on these kinds of things. And you can't do it if it's just your little Sierra Club chapter in, in one little part of the city. I mean, you, you really have to bring all people into this, right? You can't move it with just a few people. That means predominantly white, mainstream environmental groups need to partner with people of color. Brenton believes it requires embracing a larger, more inclusive agenda. It's incumbent upon those people to really make connections with people from other communities, from Black communities, Latino communities, queer communities, Communities for which saving the earth is not at the center of their worldview because they have to deal with all this other stuff like police violence and racism and homophobia and sexism. We have so many other things that we have to think about. Saving the earth is not always at the top. It's there, but it's not always at the top of the things we have to deal with because it's not one of the most immediate and urgent threats to us. But it's incumbent upon whoever is thinking at at this, at the climate, as a center of their worldview to bring all of those people in. And to do that, it's not just a matter of you convincing these people, look, we need you to sign on on this climate agenda that we have. You have to become part of their agenda. You you have to be concerned about police violence and gun violence against African Americans. You have to be concerned and act on behalf of, step in front of immigrants who are facing deportation. You, You have to be concerned about hate crimes, homophobic hate crimes. You have to be concerned about Me Too and sexual violence and sexual harassment. It, it can't be an isolated kind of myopic thing of like, you know what? Climate change is going to kill all of us if y'all don't get on with our agenda. If, if I'm black, I'm like, well, we're already dying. So what do we care? I've lost family members to all kinds of police and climate change is going to take out the earth in what, a hundred years? My community was just decimated by mass incarceration in the last 20 years. So those are the kinds of conversations and interconnections that have to be made. In working with other white climate advocates, I see the sincere desire to make the world a better place for everyone. They explain how by taking on climate change, we will also reduce localized pollution and decrease the health risks. I hear frustration and confusion from some of these climate advocates. In talking about climate solutions, they ask people of color, don't you understand? We're doing this for you too. If you're a black person in the audience and you're hearing this white climate hawk saying, look, I am trying to do this for you and for the good of all people, You know how many times I've heard that? When a politician is running for office, he comes to me and he says, look, I'm going to bring Amazon headquarters to your neighborhood and I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for the good of all people. You've heard the developer come into your neighborhood and say, look, 
We're going to build these condos. And we're doing it for you. We're doing it for the good of the community. There's always somebody who's coming into the black community or to black people or Hispanic people and telling them you need to believe in this agenda because it's good and it will help. It will lift all boats. It will lift all sails. It will help all people. We hear it just all the time. You don't sound any different. <laughs> and very rarely do you have any of these people coming into the community and saying, okay, what are your immediate needs? What's a day like for you? How can we actually solve some of the problems that you deal with on a daily basis and then try to have build a symbiotic relationship? I asked Brenton about one idea being floated by some climate advocates, carbon fee and dividend. You know, you bring up carbon fee and dividend. I like that. I like it a lot, which could be promising. But again, I mean, it would, it would just it would take a lot of really fine tuning that to make sure that there was that there was actual equity in the way that that tax revenue would be collected and distributed back to the people. As we winded up the interview, Brenton grew reflective about the past 10 years covering climate change. Brenton has shifted his focus to consider the roles cities can play in taking on climate change and justice. They are the laboratories that are turning out solutions for climate change. We can't look to the White House. We cannot look to Congress. We can't look to the governors in most states. So we really need to be looking at cities and see what kinds of uh, solutions, climate solutions, environmental solutions, transportation solutions, housing solutions, criminal justice solutions. We, we write about all of that at CityLab.com, and those are the kinds of ideas that really need to circulate and, and get out further. Brenton Mock and the other journalists at CityLab are dedicated to the people who are creating the cities of the future and those who want to live there. Now it is time for the Art House. Poet Tyree Day is with us today to share his work and read from his collection of poetry, River Hymns. I teach at St. Augustine's University here in Raleigh. And we have early college students in there, you know, so they're still in high school. I'll bring all my books. I have a bunch of book of poems. I bring them around. They'll tell me, yeah, we don't really read poetry. That's not something that's given to them. Well, who knows, you know, maybe it's given to them and they don't read it. It's, it's really like introducing them to like a new language, you know, like to think about language in a new way. Some of the poems Tyree will explain, others he will just read. You may hear two curious sounds in the background. One is the rustling of the pages of his book and other papers. The other is a chirp sound, like the cricket that comes up so often in his River Hymns poems. The sound is actually the short beep of a smoke alarm ready for a new battery. I asked Tyree about his poem, Tamed, a very personal and vulnerable poem. I think I'm just now making this connection right now. It is one of the only poems where the speaker is like truly looking at themselves. And it's like the lightest tone, you know? It's like like literally, this is going to sound savvy, but it's like the tone of a butterfly. Like if you thought of a butterfly, it would be tame. When Terrence Hayes picked this poem to be in the New York Times, I was like so shocked. 
but I'm like slowly starting to see like it, how it works in the book and how it works on its own. And I think it is like it's a moment where the speaker's really looking at themselves, but in this like still this very like young boyhood, the world hasn't like destroyed them yet. Even the way they think about death in this book, like these crickets die in this book. In any other poem, if something died, the speaker would have gone off and explored it, but it just is very lightly brushed over. Anyways, tamed. I was the unbroken horse of that town, slept standing up, held on to the breeze like wildflowers. I kept caterpillars in jars, my mama let them go, I figured they just disappeared. There are moments you can hear God say things, soft-spoken, the sun settling between thin ponds, collected crickets in two-liter bottles, dropped them in a path far from the house, one or two at the bottom drowning in the last wig of cola, the smell of mama's leaf pile faint and almost gone. My mama would say to kill a cricket is a sin against the night. Terry Day's poem, Is It Love?, references a different type of vulnerability, one of place. In talking about the poem, the topic of extreme weather events and sudden displacement came up. Usually with the storm, you know, and and it's the person who owns that building, they don't decide to rebuild or, like, do anything with the property, right? Those people, like, they lose their home. And this this home, like, in some cases, this home that generations have lived out of, you know what I mean? Is it love? I was made to wrestle a cousin in the middle of the living room. The small brown floor sofa and chairs pushed against the wall. Two older cousins over us, drunk. The television must have been broken. Or someone asked if there was a fight on. Then one of them looked at us. I'm in the same house my grandmother died in. We don't own this house. Never will. Our landlord, white and old, comes over smiling. I wonder where he lives. While my mother curses him, gets him in, out. We own kerosene heaters, the dust on our faces. As we tried to prove something, we couldn't tie down to the floor. Throw love at the wall, see if it hollers. Though it doesn't appear until page 40, Remember Birds is one of the first poems Tyree wrote for the collection. Remember Birds. We were never allowed to say lucky. Who needs a genie when you have God? When the water rises, all the birds disappear. We prepare our homes for the flood the way a preacher prepares a body, hands at your side or over your chest. Everyone gathered somewhere to pray. No one questions who God will take. Someone is always taken. Remember cardinals or good luck, but never touch a lone red feather being held by grass blades. My mama used to say, boy, you better make sure they make me look good for the Lord. In a poem with a numbered list of stanzas, Tyree gives voice to his mother. When my mother had the world on her mind, crickets in her ear. One, boy, 
Don't let a shadow in you. I never want to see the devil in your eyes, a traceable line of your daddy's. Two, if you dream about fish or river, somebody's pregnant, we need the water more than it needs us. Three, dream about snakes. You haven't been living right. Wash your hands of it. Four, they are shooting boys who look like you. You know my number. Use it. Keep all your blood. Five, stay. Six, alive. I urge you to get your own copy of Tyree Day's collection of poetry, River Hymns. It is published by the American Poetry Review. Also check out his website, tyree.work. Tyree is spelled T-Y-R-E-E, tyree.work. Thank you for listening to Spirit in Action. All of my guests today recently appeared on my monthly show, Citizens Climate Radio. Coming up in future shows, I speak with Sarah Peach, senior editor at Yale Climate Connections. We talk about telling better climate stories. Also hear the band Hayride Casualties and the album Fossil Fuel Kid. You can listen to Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get podcasts. Also, look for us at citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. I will be traveling around the UK and the US over the next few months. You can see my schedule, read my blog, watch my videos over at my website, petersontoscano.com. Thank you, Mark, for handing the show over to me. And now it's back to you. welcome, Peterson. You do such an excellent job of conveying such essential information in such a meaningful and interesting way. I'm so thankful for your contribution to Northern Spirit Radio, to Spirit in Action, and to the world. And I'm thankful to all of you who tuned in today, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <laughs>